Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about what I learned from the barrel of a gun in an episode I'm likely to call Raised on Robbery. The phrase raised on robbery is a reference to our different drummer, who we'll get to first today. However, there's a couple of things that I need to just put up as a disclaimer right at the beginning of the show. And that is to say that this is not going to be an episode dealing with questions of gun control. I don't feel like I'm in a place right now where I'm ready to talk about that issue in you know its broad perspective, or even in the particular backlash that's occurred since the killings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in the month of December. I will say, though, that on the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations, I made a post a week or so ago that I think kind of speaks to this pretty well and as close as I'm going to get to talking about the issue from this larger political perspective. It was a quote put up by one of the survivors of the Virginia Tech massacre named Colin Goddard, who says, roughly paraphrasing this, We need to challenge any politician who thinks it's easier to ask an elementary school teacher to stand up to a killer with a gun than it is to ask them to stand up to a gun lobbyist with a checkbook. My perspective is that even though I'm not personally ready to hit gun control as an issue from a lot of different inappropriate conversations type angles, I would say that we shouldn't be casual about how we expect people to respond with bravery and with valor in the midst of these sort of circumstances, that one of the naive assumptions, both by the National Rifle Association, but by even others across the political spectrum, is that if you just arm people, they'll respond appropriately. I'm here to tell you that from personal experience, that's not necessarily true. To me, the heart of what Goddard said, though, is that if we are going to have a government that is infiltrated by lobbyists, and it's high time we just gave in to the fact that right now, we have a government that is rife with the corruption of being infiltrated by lobbyists, then we still need to remember that we can expect our elected representatives to wield the ultimate power. It is absolutely un-American that such an overwhelming majority of our representatives seem to fear a backlash, not from voters, but from special interest groups. And this, of course, runs across the political spectrum, not just pointing a finger at the National Rifle Association because they're an easy target. They're one of many who are essentially buying votes and you know, setting the agenda on behalf of the American people through their own special interest money. And that's unacceptable. There's a couple things I will say, though, about the gun control question. Kind of frame it for if I get there in the future. It won't be the near future. But a couple of thoughts. First, I'm an American, and maybe as an American I've got a unique perspective here. But we need to understand that we were a nation formed because a lot of ordinary folks – had weapons, and were willing to use them. At a time of invasion by a superior military force, interested in crushing rebellion and reestablishing an illegal, or at the very least a totalitarian control over their lives. In other words, there is a level at which I feel relatively safe knowing that somebody, maybe a next-door neighbor, maybe somebody across the street, maybe somebody down the road, who lives near me, is armed. And if there was something going to go wrong in my neighborhood, perhaps that individual might be 
able to respond faster than the police, or at the very least, would be capable of providing an answer if an answer were needed. It's rare for me to have a gun in my home. I don't personally feel like I'm willing to put in the time and effort that it would take to be the kind of responsible gun owner that I'd want this hypothetical neighbor to be. But having said that, I don't think that it's inherently problematic that somebody who lives in my neighborhood might have a rifle or even a handgun and be quite talented at using it. On the other hand, the Second Amendment clearly states that what we're trying to achieve is a well-regulated militia. This does not mean that the only people who can have guns are part of the National Guard, part of the Army Reserves, or part of the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. But what it means is that those people who do have legal guns registered to own them cannot own those guns in the context of preparing for the eventual violent overthrow of our country. When you listen to the language, some of the words being spoken by the NRA and by a lot of people who are supporting that same view, concurrent opinions, if you will, the undercurrent is that they don't like this president of the United States. They don't like a lot of the people in Congress. As unhappy as I am about the influence of special interest money on the political system, they're more upset about the way the courts have behaved or the, the fact that the American voter seems to, in a majority rule for two consecutive elections, seems to have voted in people that they prefer had not been voted in. It's important to understand, though, that this concept of the freedom of gun ownership, the right and the responsibility, cutting across all of our population, that there was an expectation that farmers and ranchers would own guns. There was sort of a notion that our police should be armed. I mean, this is, again, one of the things that goes all the way back to revolutionary times, tied in with this idea of being a well-regulated militia. And my question is, how can you be a well-regulated militia if the people who own the guns and are standing in a unique position to provide this sort of emergency service, this Red Dawn Patrol, if you will, to refer to one of the movies in the 1980s that I hated almost more than any other movie in the 80s. But if you're going to be that kind of emergency, you know, last resort, ready to, you know, repel an invasion of some sort, it is appropriate, not inappropriate, that the government have some idea of who you are. How can you get the phone call at our hour of greatest need, telling you where the problem is and asking you to do the patriotic thing of picking up your gun and your ammunition and defending this great country. If your assumption is that the country has absolutely no business knowing who you are and knowing what your arsenal is, and it's worse if that arsenal is being accumulated, not in the interest of defending the United States against enemy invasion, but in the interest of overthrowing the United States. And you know, I've got an open mind. I understand the perspective of people who feel this way. They believe their government has already been taken over and that their rights have been usurped and that, you know, one day they may have to rise up and defend themselves against the jackbooted, you know, dictatorship crushing them under its heel. But the reality is what they're really upset about is that, you know, 52 or more percent of the American people just happen to disagree with them. And for that to engender language about overthrowing the United States government actually supports the case for gun control and a reinterpretation of the Second Amendment more than anything I can possibly imagine. If you would like to be the backbone of this country, armed to the hilt and ready to defend her against any attack, own it, claim it, and allow yourself to be part of a well-regulated militia. (laughs) 
Oddly, I said I wasn't going to talk about you know gun control, and that's really all I'm going to say. Uh, despite the fact that the rest of this conversation is going to have reference to guns in it, it's going to have a completely different perspective. But before I get there, I probably need to make the disclaimer that the title of this particular show really isn't about robbery per se, at least not me being raised on robbery. And if you know the song by Joni Mitchell, who's our different drummer today, that song's lyrics certainly have nothing to do with the topic from either one of these perspectives. She's not singing about gun control. She's only singing about crime in the loosest sense of the word in terms of the way people manipulate each other in a singles bar setting or perhaps an act of uh, prostitution in the form of open solicitation. But to me, the phrase is attractive, partly because I'm a huge Joni Mitchell fan, also because it does apply to what I'm going to share the rest of the way here, and that's how has my life changed and altered? Or how did my perspective change when I personally was the victim of an armed robbery? But first, to Joni Mitchell. A lot of times when I talk about musicians on inappropriate conversations, it goes all the way back to the very earliest moments. Uh, Freddie Mercury and uh, people like that. I'm, I'm discussing elementary school as my first listen. And I'm quite certain that I probably heard Joni Mitchell during that time as well. Album-oriented rock radio in the early to mid-1970s would have had no problem playing Joni Mitchell side-by-side side with bands like The Grateful Dead and Led Zeppelin. But you heard less and less of Joni Mitchell the further into the decade of the 70s you went. And even as her career had moments of resurgence in later decades, by that point in time she was viewed as some sort of adult contemporary artist and seemed to no longer have a place side-by-side, side, even with groups like the Moody Blues and Alan Parsons Project. I think that's a mistake, but it's a mistake because of the quality that makes Joni Mitchell inherently different. What truly makes her a different drummer is that her musical style didn't fit into that one categorization. You know, I probably heard both sides now, easily the earliest song I can remember from Joni Mitchell and probably heard it first from Judy Collins instead. So if you think of Joni Mitchell as a songwriter in the early years, you'd easily put her in that same category with Joan Baez and other people as part of the folk movement. But to me, it's more poetry than folk, and it translated well enough to other forms like jazz and world music, particularly because of that poetry. Now, I probably could have and should have named Joni Mitchell as a different drummer quite some time ago. I probably had her in mind originally when I thought, who is the best different drummer for the episode that I called uh, Sacred History or Sacred Friendship? That theme, because she would have fit in quite well, where instead I chose to go with Carl Young. And if you're going to get bumped for another different drummer, getting bumped by Carl G. Young is not a bad way to go. But I also thought that, you know, there's a flexibility to Joni Mitchell. If I just hang on to her, there'll be a future show, maybe a points and questions type show, where she just slots right in. Because I, I can talk to and about her in almost any context. But I will tie back to what inspired me originally to think of her in terms of sacred history. I'll do that at the very conclusion of this segment. In that writer's vein, where I'm going to skip past her jazz period, her collaboration with Mingus during his dying days, and I'm going to jump from the very end of her career, or at least the more recent albums, the last, say, 15, 20 years, and then I'm going to end with the very beginning. And I'm going to do so with quotations, because I think that it's fair to say that we can count on Joni Mitchell to represent the concepts of inappropriate conversations with words alone in areas like politics, sex, and religion. And I'm going to use three examples specifically to illustrate those points in actually precisely that order. And oddly, 
in a reverse chronological order at the same time. I want to start with an album that she put out kind of near the end of my record store experience. This was certainly the last album that I bought from her while I was working in a record store. The album called Taming the Tiger, and my favorite track from it, No Apologies, written in the aftermath of a scandal where U.S. servicemen on a base in Japan had been accused at least once, perhaps more than once, of detaining and or kidnapping and certainly raping teenage girls. Here's the opening stanza. The general offered no apologies. He said, the soldiers erred in judgment. They should have hired a hooker. No apologies to the outraged Japanese. No, sorry, little girl. The pigs just took her. This is the kind of direct, straight-to-the-point writing that Joni Mitchell has really offered throughout her career, regardless what the musical backing might have been. And in this particular song, which hits other topics, actually goes into sort of a macro-political view by the end, still brings it right back and kind of does the circle in the songwriting style, ending the song with the same beginning line, the general offered, no apologies. A few years earlier than that, uh, with the album Night Ride Home, I became convinced that Joni Mitchell had fully returned, and that if she hadn't hit the songwriting stride of the very early 70s fully and completely, she had certainly matched anything that she did in the mid to late 70s. And the track that really won me over, I'm going to jump around and quote several pieces of it, is Come In From The Cold. One of the issues that she had during this era of putting out albums on the David Geffen label was that she was writing songs that were obviously going to be the hit single from the album but at a length of seven and a half minutes or more. And in the MTV generation, as with the perhaps the 60s and the, certainly the 50s, there was just no leeway for that. Steely Dan could produce a song and release it to radio as a radio song or a radio single at this length for a track like Deacon Blues in the mid to late 1970s, and the radio stations would have no problem snapping that up and running with it. Sadly, not 20 years later. Here are some of the lyrics to come in from the cold. I think you'll see the sexual component is really what attracted me to the song. Back in 1957, we had to dance a foot apart, and they hawk-eyed us from the sidelines, holding their rulers without a heart. And so with just a touch of our fingers, I could make our circuitry explode. All we ever wanted was just to come in from the cold. I've talked about this concept before in previous inappropriate conversations, that you know, when, you, when you censor something, when you restrict it, when you deny it, all you ultimately do, if you're 100% successful, is create a fetish. And that you could actually shield male and female contact from happening to such a degree that you focus all of that energy into whatever kind of contact is allowed. And here she's saying, hey, if the only thing we can do is hold hands or touch fingers, at least to a teenage girl in the 1950s, that might be the most sexually explosive touching of fingers or holding of hands in recorded human history. At least it feels that way in the writing style of Joni Mitchell. Picking up with the next verse, we really thought we had a purpose. We were so anxious to achieve. We had hope. The world held promise for a slave to liberty. Freely I slaved away for something better, and I was bought and sold. And all I ever wanted was just to come in from the cold. To me, this is leaving the 50s, moving into the 60s, truthfully, and with the perspective of full adulthood, looking back at some of the naive ideas of the concept of perhaps being a slave to liberty. 
she ends the particular song, and again, a very poetic song at that, this way, kind of restating that verse that I just shared. When I thought life had some purpose, when I thought I had a choice, and I made some value judgments in a self-important voice, I was out of line. But then absurdity came over me, and I longed to lose control. Oh, all I ever wanted was just to come in from the cold. Those are seven and a half minutes of one of the best singles of Joni Mitchell's career. When I go back to the beginning, though, there is, and you may be able to find this online, an episode of a simply syndicated podcast called Albums You Should Hear. And one of the best, or at least one of my favorites of the Albums You Should Hear series, is the review of Joni Mitchell's Blue. Now, obviously, any good podcast that's a review, a positive review of an album, which the inherent nature of a show named Albums You Should Hear is that it's either going to be an album that's recommended because there's that passion involved, or it's going to be something looking back historically to say, well, this is important. And you know, I've talked about that before. There's, there's movies that I have spoken positively of or even recommended people see, not because they're great, because they're important. They're historically significant. They matter in a way. But that's not the same thing as a movie that you truly and deeply love. And if you can find this old episode of Albums You Should Hear, Joni Mitchell's Blue is a great way to start. It's a good one to listen to. And it says more than I will, because I'm not going to talk about the entire album. It is the first time that I'd really and truly heard Joni Mitchell. Sophomore, maybe a junior even in college. And aware of her, again, I, I knew both sides now. I could sing the song, knew the lyrics by heart, was familiar with some of the other tracks that had been played on the radio back when I was growing up and really loved what radio was doing. But I hadn't heard most of the songs from the album Blue, and it was new to me. And my roommate at the time, a new roommate, my junior year, starting off fresh, um, played it for me, or played it for himself, and I just happened to be eavesdropping. And it was a truly shattering experience. I've shared on previous inappropriate conversations that I believe that there is a, a spiritual, perhaps even a mystical quality to certain intersexual friendships I've experienced in my lifetime. Moments where I felt like perhaps God himself was saying, this is somebody you need to know. This is somebody you need to befriend. And nobody has put the driving force behind that into words, much less verse, better than Joni Mitchell. If you haven't heard Blue, it's the album to hear through and through. I've recommended a couple of songs from later in her career. But to me, Joni Mitchell's a different drummer for this one album alone. And in fact, I'll boil it down even further. She's a different drummer for the song A Case of You alone and i'll i'll take it even further she's a different drummer for half a verse of the song a case of you when prince did a tribute reinterpretation of a Joni mitchell song for one of the many tribute albums that have been done to her songwriting over the years he picked a case of you and he also like me perhaps focusing in on this this one moment didn't do the complete lyrics end to end like you tend to see a tribute album, especially what you do if you're doing a tribute to an artist that has a great deal of you know, poetic integrity. To leave out words seems like a strange choice. But I would argue that focusing in on these particular words was a brilliant choice, and it was a great example of addition by subtraction. So when I think of intersexual friendships and moments in the past when maybe I've written a letter to myself or a letter that I described as being a letter to myself, what I meant when I described that is that there have been moments in my life where the line between me and that other individual had been strangely blurred. And I've even uttered these words before 
in, thankfully, a situation where it didn't scare the hell out of the other person and just said, hey, you know what? Within this context, in this particular situation, we could be the same person. Handled clumsily, spoken foolishly, those words are inept, confusing, and frightening, perhaps. Here's what Joni Mitchell does with the same idea. I remember the time that you told me love was touching souls. Well, surely you touched mine, because part of you pours out of me in these lines from time to time. I think I want to overstate the truth just a little bit here and say that if there was one part of a verse in the history of music that I would take as the one line, the one stanza to go to a desert island with, it would be this part of A Case of You from Joni Mitchell, the part where she talks about love being touching souls. As you surely know from listening to previous inappropriate conversations, I use a lot of promos on the show. It's because I listen to and enjoy a lot of podcasts. And one of the podcasts that I'm going to promote today is uh, Geek Fights. Geek Fights has, in fact, done a recent episode where I got to join in to the latter half of the show, the best Law & Order character. And Law & Order makes a good segue for me here. And at some point, I'll drop in the Geek Fights promo where it seems to make sense in the storytelling. Perhaps I'll find a suspenseful moment. But I've also been weaving some shout-outs just into the body of the stories themselves. And I feel like this is the time to do that a couple of times in a couple of different ways. I mentioned Simply Syndicated already in albums you should hear. One of the shows in Simply Syndicated that I didn't really talk about much, didn't promote in episode 100, talking about the evolution of you know, my online experience leading up to this podcast itself, one of the ones I sort of skipped over was the definitive word. And the format of the definitive word was, was fantastic, in my opinion. It was, you know, two, three people getting together, sometimes more, having a discussion. The topics could be as serious as things like, you know, prostitution or abortion or plastic surgery, but they also could be as lighthearted and as frankly silly as, you know, beverages or superheroes. And, you know, the conversations didn't necessarily start out to be funny. There was comedy along the way in almost every episode. But the main thing was actually trying to have a serious conversation about a topic from the perspective of ignorance. The definitive word being an ironic title that they were not, in no way, shape or form offering the definitive word on anything. Now, of course, there's exceptions. One interview that the host did with his father about the state of the law in Hong Kong and just the difference in Hong Kong culture versus British culture did actually have expertise to it. Uh, it was people talking about things that they personally eyewitnessed and personally experienced as British citizens living abroad. Another one, perhaps my favorite, plastic surgery, goes back so far, it's probably definitely not available on the feed. But there was a great deal of, of good information, solid historical perspective, compelling opinion, and hilarious comedy all rolled up into one. I mention that because if you talk about a ripped-from-the-headline sort of review of news of the day, secretly timid lately, and perhaps for its entire run, I've only been listening for a few months now, has certainly captured that spirit. They are, to me right now, my, my surrogate for the definitive word, perhaps my permanent surrogate for a show that is more likely than not gone forever. It is, in every sense of the word, pod-faded. But there's another show I've been listening to lately that I think is going to help as this introduction here. If we got this law and order concept that Geek Fights has uh, put out there in their show just released this week, as I'm recording this week, 
But there's also another show I've been listening to on the Nerdist Network lately that I bypassed when it first came out because I thought, well, surely this just can't be for me. It's called the JV Club. JV standing for Janet Varney, the host of the show. And essentially, the podcast theme is Girl Talk. And it doesn't devote itself to a theme or a topic. It's truly the person that's related to it. And so there's some people that she's had on the show that I'm familiar with. Comedian Tig Nataro or um, Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live. But there's others where I don't know who she's speaking to, but I know that she knows that person. And it's literally like eavesdropping on those moments that you can't cover up with lipstick and powder, as Elvis Costello famously wrote. It's girl talk in every sense of the word. And the one thing that she's doing, the JV Club is a, is a you know, good pun. It's both her initials, you know, Janet Varney, the host of the show, and also makes a reference to high school. In fact, makes a reference to being in the underdeveloped side of high school, not a, a varsity perspective, but a junior varsity perspective, not a starring role, not a superstar, not a big man on campus, or in this case, a big woman on campus, but the JV. And the show really, to me, has resonated because it has the same kind of nostalgic feel that I do. And in episodes I've listened to recently, both fairly new ones and some old ones, as I've sampled through the year of uh, shows that they've put out, really talk about that idea of saying, you know, there's some experiences in high school that stick with you for your entire life. And in some ways, you're still resolving those issues in a subconscious way without even realizing it, that uh, if you were to encounter some of those same people again, you might have a strange flood of emotions that you weren't prepared to deal with. In an episode a few months back, she talked with somebody who had saved almost every letter of correspondence she'd received throughout her years, at least you know throughout her school-aged years, both from female friends and from boyfriends. And she said you know, she almost didn't recommend reading those letters. It was Jessica St. Clair from last April. It shocked her and it would probably shock any of us, how those emotions are not yet fully resolved if you were to go back and read some of those things. And to me, that's kind of exactly what I've been talking about whenever I hit a nostalgia topic on inappropriate conversations. And this one, really, rather than truly being a political topic, I'm not going to come away with any point of view about gun control here. I've promised that, and I'm going to live, live up to that promise. But it, it's a story from my past that's true. And it's a story that answers the question of whether or not we can assume that if you simply arm school teachers, that that's all you need to do, that them having a weapon in their hands at that moment of great crisis answers all the open questions, the more guns response from the NRA, in other words. So the first thing I thought a couple of months ago, when I heard the name Victoria Soto for the first time, I think a lot of us will still remember this. The images are tragic and fresh in our memory. Soto was a first grade teacher at Sandy Hook School in Newtown, Connecticut, who, upon hearing gunfire in the school and realizing that a genuine crisis was going on, hid the children in cabinets and cupboards inside her classroom, and then when the gunman finally reached her part of the school, allegedly lied to him, telling him that the kids were in the gymnasium, and pretty much laying her life on the line as he shot and killed her as the only person available to murder at the time. Now, I've got some questions about this story that we may never get an answer to. The eyewitness or the ear witness, in this case, to that conversation would more likely not have to be one of the kids hiding in a cabinet. So I don't think we know exactly what the verbal exchange was. I don't think we can put the conversation between her and her killer in really solid quotation marks. But there are some facts here which cannot be disputed, at least based on the evidence available to us. 
Those kids survived because they were hiding in cabinets and cupboards. The idea was surely hers and not anybody else's. And she was able to maintain the front that the kids were not in the classroom at all, that they weren't hidden in any way. They weren't available to the shooter and sacrificed her life to make that bluff work. In other words, when people refer to her as a hero, I think they're telling the truth because my experience tells me that at age 27, she was much more brave and much more composed than I was in a not quite similar situation at age 17. Now, the gap between age 17 and 27, pretty big. And the authority level that a school teacher has over a group of first graders in an elementary school is much greater than the assistant to the assistant to the assistant manager in a movie theater. So I think maybe I sell myself short when I tell this story, that if I had had more authority and maybe a few more years under me, I would have kicked into some sort of damage control that if I thought I had somebody to protect or a way of protecting people, I might have done better. But let me paint the picture first. Most times, if I refer in inappropriate conversations to my work, I'm referring to jobs I don't have anymore, specifically the record store. And there's lots of reasons for that. There's a lot of different drummers who are musicians. I had a lot of experiences there. But the job that I had before I went to college, so before the newspapers, before the record store, was being the assistant manager of a movie theater. And I've relayed some parts of that story in the past. What all began, really, a couple of weeks before Christmas in December of that year. The summertime before that, before school started, I'd been working in a grocery store, sacking groceries, sweeping floors, driving the bakery truck on the weekends. And when it came time for school to start, it dawned on me that the part of that job I enjoyed the most, which was the bakery delivery piece of it, was going to have to go away, that I was not going to be able to get the kind of hours during the school day that I was getting in the summer where I might have been driving the truck not just on Saturdays, but also on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays as well. And going to school, that was going to have to disappear. And I just didn't enjoy the sack boy role quite as much as some of the other odd jobs that I was doing at the time. Plus, when you're marching in the marching band, you're getting up very early in the morning. And so going into my senior year in high school, wasn't sure that I wanted to be juggling a job I no longer really cared for that much, with the least interesting aspects of the job were probably going to be taken from me and, and put in the hands of somebody who had more hours available than I was going to have. So I turned my notice in at the end of the summer, spent the entire football season just being a student and you know a drummer and all that. And then when December rolled around and my team was eliminated, unable to make the playoffs, and marching band season was effectively over, I decided to apply at the movie theater. And it was a great time to do it because – even though we think really more of, of the mall and traditional retail as having that need for a lot of Christmas help and a lot of that Christmas help necessary before Thanksgiving. But it's after Thanksgiving, going into the Christmas break, when the movie theaters have their spike in demand and their need for additional help. So I was able to work for two or three weeks and learn really important things. Uh, how do you run the popcorn popper? How does the box office function? Can you run the projection equipment? Things of that nature to give me a kind of a broadband set of skills that could be transferred and used at any point. I was an employee who, by the time I got to the month of February, this, by the way, is February almost 30 years ago to the day, at least by the time I release this, I'll be releasing this pretty close to the 30th anniversary of the events I'm going to describe. I had a few weeks, well, really months under my belt that had proven myself to be the kind of person that you could put in any situation. I could be in any role at the concession stand, I could run the projection booth, and I could work the box office. On this particular night, 
I was working the box office. And it was a Friday night where we had a new movie opening. Now, we were a twin theater and a twin theater with a lot of seats. Uh, the combined seating in both of the uh, auditoriums wasn't quite 1,000, but it was, it was closer to 1,000 than it was to 500. In fact, we probably had almost 500 seats in one of the theaters by itself. And that was the theater that was showing the new movie. So what we'd done is when Quest for Fire came out, which was the new movie that had just been released, it had a lot of buzz. In fact, this might have been the second weekend of that movie, come to think of it, because the word of mouth had, had just suddenly taken off. A Richard Pryor film had previously started, and that's always a good box office draw. We'd bumped that from the main auditorium with the Dolby sound and all the, all the hoopla to the secondary auditorium, which was a little bit smaller, though not, not a lot smaller, and didn't quite have all the same audio quality. But you, know, you get the uh, Richard Pryor comedy compared to all the effects and all the things that were going to be going on inside this anthropological sort of new age film. I don't know how to describe Quest for Fire. If you haven't seen it, then any description I give is going to seem completely whacked out. But it's actually true that this is a movie that was made with no English language in it whatsoever. Few, if any, subtitles. I don't think there were subtitles. You basically have a caveman story. And a caveman story with great comic moments, but not told as a comedy. Literally told in a serious way, where a tribe has lost its fire in a massive rainstorm and has to send some warriors, some young men, out to try to find more fire. At a time at the dawn of man, when the knowledge of how to make fire was not widely known. And in the midst of their adventures, they're chased by a saber-toothed tiger, they encounter a rival tribe, all sorts of things happen. But none of it in English, none of it with dialogue, none of it with subtitles. Well acted, good makeup, but nevertheless inherently comic, just because you have so much of it being told in what's essentially pantomime, and on some level, that's going to be comic. So Quest for Fire opens up, we're selling out. I showed up after school, so like 5 o'clock, 4.30, and even the early shows were a sellout. And of course, on this particular night, the 7 o'clock show was packed, we were turning people away, and the 9.30 show was going to sell out as well. So we were, we'd done as much business as I'd seen since Christmas time, since school was out for these movies. And one of the things that the boss that I had at that time did really well is she was very aggressive about procedure. So it was very unlikely that we were going to you know, have a lapse in judgment, cut a few corners, break a few rules, and especially if we were really busy. I'd worked with managers, in fact, managers of other movie theaters in this same chain, where being really busy, out of control busy, would be an excuse to not do things exactly right. But under this particular manager's leadership, the, uh, the crazier things were, the more people were there, the more important it was to execute properly and fully and well. So at some point during the evening, kind of between the two movie start times and that subtle lull, call it 8.30, the crowds had not yet been released from the previous show, and they hadn't started coming in yet for the last show of the night, I'd gone off to use the restroom. And when I came back, the manager had sat in for me while I was gone. The uh, box office never left unattended. And she had drained the box office. And what that means is that even things that I had dropped into the lockbox below the cash register area, there was no cash register, but the, the till, she drained all of that as well to where they would literally... Uh, she'd brought me $100 in ones, 25 bucks in fives, and, and there was precious little left at the box office at that point in time. And she would do this again later on at the end of the evening, staying on top of things. I want to say that this 
small twin theater did something like $25,000 in business that day. Again, most of it going to Hollywood because the box office receipts tend to just pay for the film. But, you know, the cash registers uh, at the uh, concession stand didn't do bad business either. If nothing else had happened the rest of this night, I believe it still would have been very memorable for me because it was just one of those strange moments. It was after Valentine's Day. There was still a good deal of couples traffic going on. And we had one of those restaurants across the street that kind of engendered a lot of you know frivolity among its patrons. It was a, the kind of restaurant where the, the wait staff is uh, paid to insult the patrons. And they're as likely as any other restaurant in town to have a masquerade party on any given Friday or Saturday night. And this was one of those nights. I don't know what their drink specials were. I don't know what their food specials were. Maybe it was just the novelty of a, of a fancy dress party. But they had drawn a huge crowd. And by my recollection, they had drawn a very drunk crowd as well. People had gone to this restaurant, say, 7, 7.38 at night, um, had a lot of drinks, had a lot of food, had a lot of fun, and for whatever reason decided that maybe coming across the street to watch this new weird anthropology film would be the fun way to cap off their night. And we literally, especially that last show, kind of just sold out the show with drunk people, mostly drunk couples. And, you know, the policy in the, in the movie theater business is that the box office area is the outside food and drink policy. Now, the way this theater was organized, there was a long set of glass panes leading into the front doors. And if you came into the front doors, you'd actually be walking back along the, the inside of those same large pieces of glass to the box office. And the box office was sort of separated in the very front of the store, inside, not outside, with no outside access. But you still had to go through the box office if you wanted to get to the concession stand or the restrooms or the theater entrances set apart from the concession stand to where if the guys in the concession stand were telling a hilarious joke, I wouldn't hear it. And if I was trying to read or study for school or whatever, they wouldn't disturb me. So the box office was a great place to be if you really wanted to get something done, unless you've got two sold out shows and both of those sold out shows are comedies and lots of drunk people are coming in. And normally when you take a gin and tonic or a glass of wine or a bottle of beer away from somebody when you're imposing the no outside food or drink policy, you're going to create a bad atmosphere. You're going to make people unhappy. And I'm telling you, this group was in such a good mood. They were so easygoing. They'd had such a good time elsewhere that not a single person threw much of a fit about me taking away their bottle of Diet Coke or the rest of their martini. It didn't matter to them. On more than one occasion, I can remember them saying, hey, you know what? This kid looks like he's had a rough night. You go ahead and finish my gin and tonic. Here, have my vodka Collins. I mean, I didn't drink any of the leftover uh, washback that they offered me, but I got offered it more than once. And again, strangely, cheerfully, if you try to tell somebody they can't bring their Snickers bar into the theater, you're likely to have at least a bad customer experience, if not an argument on your hands, but not on this night. They were having a good time, and they weren't going to let any annoying movie theater policy throw them off. By and large, they were congregated around the concession stand area and waiting to either go into the theater. Maybe we were cleaning it up. It takes longer to sweep up the mess in a theater that's sold completely out for a couple of shows in a row. And so there was a big crowd kind of blocking my view of the concession stand and their view of me when the armed robbers came in. Now, the armed robbers, two of them, and I'm telling this story sort of from the perspective of historic memory. If you'd asked me what happened the day it happened, I would not have been anywhere near as brave and level-headed as Victoria Soto was. 
But two of them came in, and the problem that I had was I'd seen this masquerade party happening all night long. I'd seen people dressed up like the characters from Gone with the Wind. I'd seen Abe Lincoln complete with top hat, stovetop pipe, the whole nine yards. These guys come in dressed up with, uh, you know, cowboy hats and the kind of plaid Western shirts that snap rather than button, bandanas over their face, one wearing a red one, one wearing a blue one, and guns, looking like they were prepared to hold up the stagecoach or something, or the great train robbery was being reenacted before my eyes. And I was in a great mood. So I was laughing at them as they came in, and I was about to tell them that they had the best costumes that I'd seen all night when they told me to shut the fuck up. I think I just earned my explicit language tag. Ironic. But I'm quoting directly. And, you know, it didn't take long for me to to take the seriousness of their voice and to look at their attire as less of a costume and more of the tools of the trade. And I found myself standing less than six, seven feet from the barrel of a gun in the midst of an armed robbery. And the point that I will make when I get to the end of this is, had I been armed myself, I would have made a serious mistake and gotten probably myself and a lot of other people killed. But as it was, I was terrified that I was already about to get myself, if not other people killed. Because in that moment of unexpected conflict, of you know, great stress, I completely froze. I froze so much that when I was reporting the details later to the police, I completely lost track of the fact that there were two guys to begin with. I was uncertain of whether the guy that I was describing to them had a red bandana or a blue bandana over his face, because I'd seen both, but I completely lost sight of the fact that there were two of them. Here's how it played out. After I was told to shut up and I obliged, not only was I unable to move, I was also unable to speak, so had he asked me to recite a you know soliloquy or something, I would have been in just as big a trouble as I was from laughing at him. Now, the box office was locked, but it was only locked with a little latch. It wasn't you didn't need a key to get in. Again, the box office was inside the structure of this particular movie theater. So you didn't have to worry about locking it from the outside. And because it was business hours, right at the end of the moment when people were coming in to see the show, the theater doors were opening up and people were going in to take their seats. The previews were starting. These guys come in. So the second guy, again, the guy that I didn't even know was there when I tried to recall things immediately after sort of just kicked in that little, you know, latch on that door. And he's standing in the back of the box office with me. And at first he's asking me to give him the money. And I'm sort of with my eyes looking into where the money is, sort of motioning, but I'm unable to move. He apparently told me to get out of the way and shoved me. And I was so frozen solid. My feet were so rooted completely to the floor inside that box office that when he shoved me, the upper part of my body, including my head, Move backwards, my head hitting, resting really, on the wall behind me. And I was at probably something like a 75-degree angle. Feet still where they were, head up against the wall, diagonal in every conceivable way. In their haste, the second guy took all the money that he could find, scrounged around a little bit to see if there was tickets or any other valuables in the lost and found, and hightailed it. The exchange between me and that second guy was probably 25 seconds tops. It, it didn't take him very long to take all the cash that was there. Part of the reason it didn't take him long, and I well knew it, was that there wasn't a lot of cash there. We'd gone to the bank with the bulk of this $25,000 already. The big deposit had been made. And the manager had only very recently taken the balance of the money away 
once again, draining what was there and leaving me after the last rush of the day with $100 in ones, five $5 bills, I probably wasn't sitting on more than $200 cash as it stood at the moment that they came in. So I'm sitting there with you know no procedure in my head. This is not a drill that I'd ever practiced, not a clue what to do. But in the back of my mind, I began thinking to myself, okay, first off, cooperate. Even if I had, for whatever reason, been armed, this was not the time to crack open a pocket knife and take a stab at somebody. Cooperate. The second thing was, again, I have no idea how this is going to work, but at some point, somebody is going to ask me to describe these guys. So I'm making a mental note of the person that I could see in front of me, the one that I'm you know, supposed to be kind of keeping my eyes on and not the one who's stealing. And so I'm watching him and saying, okay, well, you know what? trying to guess how old he is, trying to determine how much facial hair he might have underneath the bandana, what is the hair color in general. Definitely making a mental note of the fact this is kind of a red plaid western shirt with jeans, presumably cowboy boots. I couldn't see that far down. This is part of the country where jeans and cowboy boots and a western hat would have made sense. And then the problem was mentally cataloging this information as if I'm going to be called upon to replay it. And I get to the gun. By the time I got to the point of seeing kind of eye to eye with the gun, trying to identify what it was, trying to, again, catalog what I was going to have to describe later, it just became about me and the gun. Again, their entire visit to the store couldn't have been much more than a minute. But in the 10, 15 seconds that I was staring down the barrel of that gun, the gun got larger and larger and larger. When they finally turned to leave, my opinion was that I'd spent the last 15 years staring into a cannon. I had stared into the abyss, and I was hoping and praying that the abyss was not going to stare back. I just end up on a show where Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is up against Forbidden Planet, and somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi Schema Podcast. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So what are we fighting about this time, Dan? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. Once they turned to leave with whatever money they could acquire, I was simultaneously relieved that they were going. This could have been ugly. They could have headed, you know, Pulp Fiction style into the actual concessionary and tried to rob the concession stands, tried to rob customers. They didn't do it. This was a snatch and grab type of a robbery, and they were on the way out the door. But the other thought that occurred to me was that I had failed in every conceivable way to be cooperative. I mean, these guys come in. They've got serious business they're trying to take care of. It's a you know potentially life and death matter. There's certainly a lot at stake for them. And what have I done? I've laughed at them on their way in the door. I've failed to speak to them when spoken to. I didn't move very out of the way very well when they were trying to move me out of the way and take the money. When they were trying to steal what was in the box office, they had to have known they didn't get anywhere near the amount of cash they should have for two sold-out shows. And who knows, maybe they'd been casing us for much of the night and knew, knew that we had several sold-out shows in a row. And I began to get very concerned that at the point that they were at, could their disappointment have led to some sort of retaliation? Was I, in other words, having cooperated fully and completely, still going to get shot on their way out the door? And really, at that moment in my life, believed that there was at least a 50-50 chance that it was my last day on the planet. Again, I'd been staring some six, seven feet away 
from a handgun pointed directly at me. I didn't know whether these guys had an itchy trigger finger. So what I did was realizing that the best chance I had of avoiding being on the business end of a bullet was to have the box office structure in my way. Now, as a structure goes, the box office really wasn't all that impressive. It was made up of particle board, not you know real solid wood. But there was enough particle board there to hold up this countertop area. And underneath the countertop were at least two or three layers of metal because the tickets at the time, this is you know kind of the old-fashioned method of handing you a paper ticket and somebody else tearing it, were living inside these metal cabinets, these metal sheaths. And so I figured, well, I've got at least two layers of metal in me, no matter where. So if they tried to shoot me, I'm not going to be standing up. If they try to shoot me through the box office, maybe the metal is going to slow all this down. And then I realized that they were probably going to take off and run right past the the panes of glass, the big windows. So as they're heading down the sidewalk to get into the getaway vehicle, whatever that was, I was crawling on my hands and knees to be on the other side of the box office at all times to make sure that wherever they were, I had these layers of metal between me and them because you you can't trust the character and judgment of somebody who would go in and commit an armed robbery on a busy night with a place full of witnesses. And then I realized there were probably witnesses. And the reason that that dawned on me is that I'm kneeling on the floor. I'm literally hands and knees, doggy style, in front of the box office, trying to peer through the window to see if they've left. More than anything else, I wanted them gone. I had no notion that I was going to see the getaway vehicle or make any mental note of its license plate or its make and model. I was literally just trying to make sure that I was safe until they were gone. Well, the few drunk partygoers who were still hanging around by the concession stand at that point had not really noticed that what had occurred was an armed robbery at all. Instead of being terrified by the fact that two, two men with guns had come in and held up the place that they were standing at as customers, they were laughing and making fun of me for being on my hands and knees. I was hearing comments like, Hey, you must have finished that vodka Collins you gave him after all. He's already flat on the floor. Look, he's drunk as a sc-. You know, I'm catching all this flack from customers who never seem to realize that at any point, that just a minute earlier, they were actually potentially in grave danger. Now, luckily, the people at the concession stand, halfway across this large lobby, had enough distance to have some perspective. They had recognized that what was going on was an armed robbery. And once again, following unwritten, or at least policy we'd never read, to the letter. They didn't do anything impulsive. They didn't intervene. They stayed cool. They stayed cooperative. But they did decide that two things needed to happen the second those guys with the guns were gone. One needed to go into the office and tell the manager we'd been robbed. The other one was going out the back door through the bigger movie theater of the two to see if he could identify what the vehicle was to make the model and the license plate. Again, I'd like to think that if I'd seen the armed robbery from that distance, I would have made the same kind of decisions myself. I would have waited until no one was in danger, and then I would have done everything I could to try to alert authorities and perhaps get some kind of information the police could use to, uh, you know, to apprehend the suspects. Between you and me, they never apprehended those suspects. What happened instead was that while you know, one of my friends was out you know, getting what information he could from a brown van being driven away at a high speed, the other one was in the office telling the manager we'd been robbed. I'm still standing in the box office, absolutely bewildered. I mean, I'm looking at the box office saying, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Again, I don't have a policy for what if you get in an armed robbery. I just got lucky and, you know, did step one on that future policy, which was cooperate completely. 
But I also thought, you know what? If somebody else comes in here five, ten minutes late for the movie, I don't know if I can make change. So I pick up the phone and I instigate a intercom call to the office. And I'm talking to the manager on the phone right around the time that the guy from the concession stand showed up to give her the big news. But before he could speak, because she was on the phone to me, I said, Susan, I'm going to need some ones. I didn't know what to do. I knew that I didn't have any ones. So that's crazy. When I drained you just a few minutes ago, I gave you two packs of 50. You have a hundred ones, right? Said, nope, I'm clean out. Before she could question what the heck happened, the guy at the concession stand told her we'd been robbed. And she picked the phone back up. She says, have you been robbed? I said, yep, that's why I'm out of ones. I don't have any fives either. I've been robbed. There's no money left. She says, well, get back here. We've got to fill out a report. We've got to call the police. You know, the most important thing right now is for you to let me know as fully and as much detail as you can what actually happened. My answer, and maybe this was just shock. Maybe this was just being young and naive. But my answer was, what about the box office? We can't leave the box office unattended. I don't know whether she was laughing at me or not. It was one of those sighs that could have been a laugh or could have been a sigh of derision for all I knew. She basically said, listen, the movies have both started. We don't have any money. We've just been robbed. It's free tickets for the rest of the night for anybody who comes in. Get back here. Go ahead and leave the box office unattended. What are they going to steal? Tickets? So I went back. She'd already called the police. We filled out some, yeah, almost some freehand descriptions. She did find an incident form, but it was a generic incident form. The same thing you'd use if, if a little old lady slipped in the bathroom and hurt herself. It, it wasn't specific to this situation. We just didn't have a what if you get robbed scenario. I would later find out from the police that this was not the first movie theater robbery that was happening in this large city that I lived in. But I also heard a year or so later that there hadn't been one since. And despite the fact that some of these movie theater robberies that had occurred earlier had been fairly violent, that the people who'd come in with guns had not just robbed the box office, but gone into the manager's office and tied people up and broken into safes and stuff. And and these guys would have been very disappointed if they'd broken into our safe as well, because there might have been an extra, you know, couple hundred bucks there too. But again, we'd done a really good job of not just taking the money away from the box office, but actually doing a delivery to the bank before that last set of shows started. All of us were kind of alarmed at how much money we'd accumulated on this particular evening. But no, in this case, these guys made away with something like $200. And the police would later tell us that they felt like maybe the the string of armed robberies petered out after that, because if it was the same people, they weren't getting much reward. And perhaps in their minds, these uh, different movie theater chains in town have been communicating with each other and just doing a better job trying to eliminate the large sums of cash that, that had been laying around when they first started their little ring of robberies. I think that's overstating it a bit. It was perhaps on some level just dumb luck, but I didn't mind taking credit for any role I may have played in putting a stop or at least a stall to this particular kind of robbery by making the risk-reward factor completely out of whack for somebody who would go in and risk fairly hard time for committing an armed robbery. The important thing for me was I'd had a gun held to my face, and in some level that changed a lot of things. Maybe it even changed everything. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? 
I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin. Common Sense. When the police arrived, the main thing they wanted from me was a description. And I think trying to make sure that there was no inside element to this theft, they interviewed the three eyewitnesses independently. The manager was not an eyewitness. She had been in the office preparing the bookkeeping for, again, what had been a very busy night. I was in the box office, actually, you know, again, at the at the business end of a gun. And both guys in the concession stand had independently eyewitnessed it. They took the description of make and model and vehicle and partial license plate from the person who went out the back. And the person who went to inform the manager, they took a description from him. And, of course, both those men described two guys. When they came to interview me... I described one guy, and I didn't even think it weird at the time that they were asking me on perhaps more than one occasion. I mean, they didn't harp on it. They didn't ask three or four times, but, you know, how many guys did I see? You know, how many guys was I describing? Was I sure it was just one? Hey, you said the bandana was red, but then you later said it was blue. Is that because you got confused about the color, or could there have been more than one person? I mean, I was just clueless about the second person. I mean, the person who actually made physical contact with me, it wasn't violent, harmful contact, but I got enough of a shove to sort of lean part of my body out of his way but i'd lost sight of him in fact when it came down to describing the guy that i'd actually been staring at the person i'd be mentally cataloging to try to describe to the police when the time came i could not remember anything about him except for the fact that he had a gun i think it was driving the police a little bit nuts as well because they would ask for other descriptive information and all i would all i had was he had a gun so finally one of the police officers said describe the gun I said, well, I, didn't, you know, I don't really know that much about guns. I mean, how would you go about describing a gun? And he said, well, was it a rifle? Was it a handgun? Was it a bazooka? I mean, just describe the gun. I said, well, it was a handgun because he's holding it in his hand. He says, okay, well, was it a revolver? And then he went on to several more technical terms, none of which I was familiar with, uh, not at age 17. And to be honest with you, probably not all that much now either. And I just kind of told him, yeah, I didn't really know. So he asked me what color it was. I just looked at him askance to be honest with you, like, like he was trying to make some sarcastic comment. I said, what do you mean what color? It was gun color. I, do guns come in colors? And he said, calm down. You've been through a stressful situation. Was it black? Was it chrome? Was it silver? Was it gold? And as he's doing that, he's pulling out his service revolver to sort of show me where there are descriptive elements that might apply to a gun. Wooden handle, for example. And when I saw him pull out his gun, I kind of snapped too. kind of had an emotional reaction. And I said, okay, hang on a second. It was black and it was a revolver. And you can put that away now because literally I was still stuck with this cannon sized image of me looking down the barrel of this gun and it just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It was a couple of days later before I remembered the Western wear and the bandanas and the fact that there was a second guy and that they may have been wearing cowboy hats, and that they definitely seemed to be wearing jeans, and that I easily mistook them for people who might have been dressed up for a costume party. That information came from me much too late, and it did corroborate what they'd heard from the concession stand. But the police officers were pretty blunt about saying, you know, the odds of us catching these individuals, even with a partial make and model of a, of a van, it's not that strong. And maybe I, as a witness, wasn't that strong either. I asked my boss and the district superintendent, you know, a few days later, if I'd blown it. 
if I'd failed completely, if my inability to remember anything except the gun had been some sort of a problem. And what I was told was that probably the opposite is true, that had I been able to describe them accurately and well, whether that description corroborated what they'd heard from the concession stand or whether it was completely different, it didn't matter. Me in that situation, being calm, cool, collected, having a free-flowing story to tell about what they looked like and what they did, would have immediately been suspicious. It would have raised serious questions about whether I'd had something to do with it. Because a 17-year-old kid in that situation, who'd never stared down the barrel of a gun pointed at him before, probably shouldn't have much immediate short-term memory of what happened. My memory was so bad, in fact, that there was a period of time, maybe all the way into March, maybe even into the very early part of April, where out of the blue, surprising to me when it would occur, I would suddenly have this irrational fear that it was them, that I'd be standing at the gas station pumping gas and a pickup truck would pull over next to me to pump gas. And there'd be two guys in it. I'd be like, okay, hang on a second. There's two guys here. Maybe they're the same guys. I know that the guys from the concession stand said that it was a van, but maybe they have a truck too. And if they recognize me, I mean, I don't recognize them, but they might think I recognize them. And if they think I recognize them and they get uneasy about it, I'm not, I shouldn't stare at them. But now how do I, if I don't stare at them, how do I know if it's them? But how am I really going to know it's them anyway? Because I don't have that much of a good memory of them. And if they're not wearing the same kind of clothes, I mean, absolute, off the scale, irrational fear of complete strangers who had nothing to do whatsoever with any aspect of it. Now, at work, I did what I considered to be the smart thing. Got myself back into the box office as soon as my manager was comfortable, as soon as I could, so that I wouldn't have any sort of irrational fear about that. It was very important that I sit in that chair on a Friday night, the next time some big movies opened and we were selling the show out, and just have a normal night. Drive down the same road where you got the traffic ticket, Otherwise, you may turn into one of those people who's afraid to drive down the road where you've had a bad experience before. That alone may have cured the issue at work, but it didn't cure the issue elsewhere. I finally snapped to and came to my senses and sort of changed my behavior at church. In the balcony, a few weeks later, me, my girlfriend who's now my wife, uh, upstairs with some of the rest of the people in the youth group, and coming in late for the worship service was a middle to late middle-aged couple, man and a woman, I'm going to say late 50s, early 60s, sat down a little bit behind us and across the aisle. So a little bit unusual for a non-youth, you know, non-high school, college-age person to be up in the balcony, but there they were. And it sort of struck me strange because, well, it's a little odd that they should be there. And all of a sudden, that same sort of irrational response hit me. These could be the guys. These could be the ones who robbed me. What if they recognize me? I don't recognize them. And, you know, my wife finally just tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, you've got to chill. You've got to get a grip on this. That's a, that's a middle-aged man and woman. Looks like they've never worn cowboy gear in their life. They certainly don't have a couple of six-shooters. You've got to stop worrying about it. Being in church is a good place to put those kind of things to rest. I believe the Christian perspective would be that you can lay all sorts of things at the foot of the cross and... You know, again, I was in the exact right spot to sort of set aside what had become something of a sinful anxiety, um, making this event all about me instead of what had really been a crime committed against the movie theater. And at that moment, I finished that maturation process of growing up, no longer being just the victim of an armed robbery, no longer being somebody who just stared down the barrel of a gun and maybe saw his life flash before his eyes or on some level thought that that might be a possibility. 
Instead, I became somebody who was on the other side of that, who had learned and grown and matured from the experience, maybe matured more than I should have at 17 years old. But in that sense, I like to describe it as being raised on robbery. At the very least, I know what kind of bravery we're talking about when we say a 27-year-old woman standing before somebody who'd already gunned down a dozen or more people was definitely going to kill her. And the only question, was he going to kill her and another room full of kids at the same time? You cannot legislate that bravery. You cannot mandate that bravery. Putting a gun in her hands doesn't cover the gap. I was frozen solid, frozen in my tracks. If I'd had a magic button like you had on video games at the time, like Defender, where I could have just hit the button and destroyed all weapons in my path or gotten rid of all my enemies, I might not have had the wherewithal to push that button. And it tells you all you need to know about whether the solutions we offer to the problems we're facing are as simple as more guns or are as simple as less guns. There's something else involved when someone is face-to-face with an act of this sort of evil. And I know because I've been there. Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin McLeod.